Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. It's especially good to see you tonight. I, uh, I've shared with some people, kind of concerned if I were to speak very many weeks in a row, if anyone would come back. And uh, I was especially concerned because none of you came back last week. So I'm glad you're here this week. <laughs> I didn't come either, for that matter. <clears throat> um, there's been a little, because of last week in part, a little curve thrown at us. I'm, uh, if you looked at your bulletin closely, I'm going to be uh, teaching this week and then next week, and then we're going to take quite a bit of time off from the story of the Bible um, for other things and pick it back up as we have time late summer and into the fall. So this next two weeks, we're going to explore portions of the Old Testament, and we're going to go from there. Now, it, uh, it strikes me that there's going to be a lot of you here tonight who weren't here last week. Um, we're exploring what we're calling the story of the Bible, and I'm going to just do a little review, a few slides from last week, so that um, bring you up to speed. Um, if you have questions because you weren't here and doesn't make sense, you can ask me later. Or, I guess two weeks ago, that, that uh, sermon or that lecture was is, is in, on the website, so you can listen there. I don't encourage that, though. You probably don't want to hear my voice again. My definition of the story of the Bible. <clears throat> this isn't the only definition. We're blinking. This isn't the only way to say it. I asked each of you two weeks ago to write it down yourself before we even started. A lot of ways to say this, but this is how I would say it. The overarching story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. God's revelation to mankind concerning his purpose and plan to glorify his name by redeeming people from every people group in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. That uh, looks pretty normal to you, looks pretty right. I submit to you the, the issue that we have in Christendom today, issue I have, the issue you have, the issue our churches have is we tend to leave two important components of that story out. And that's the one that's highlighted. Glory, glorify his name and from every people group in the world. We tend to understand, we sang beautifully tonight the story of the Bible as far as redemption goes, didn't we? The gospel, and it's all about God and bring glory to Him. So we did sing about that, but in terms of our life and in terms of our reading of Scripture, in terms of our understanding, we miss that real often, and we always tend to miss from every people group in the world. So what we tend to do by our life and by our teaching and by our actions, we tend to write the definition something like God's revelation to mankind concerning his purpose and his plan to redeem people through his son Jesus Christ. And we tend to miss uh, these two important components. Now leaving out that it's all about God and not about us and leaving out that it's for God reaching all peoples doesn't make it wrong. It just makes the definition or explanation incomplete. We are not going to spend, as we mentioned two weeks ago, we're not going to spend our time, th this series, however long it goes and whenever it concludes, we're not, going to, we're not going to spend time on the redemption part of the story, the gospel. That's assumed. We teach it. We preach it. We know it here. We're going to spend time helping us to see from Genesis to Revelation that it's all about God and his reach to the nations. And so I want you to get your thinking caps on. I want you to be ready to listen fast. Um, and I want to go through 
passages of Scripture tonight and next week is going to be Old Testament and we're not going to be done with the Old Testament. But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I've, I've identified over 220 passages of Scripture. Most of those are in the Old Testament about this story and how we need to get it. And I think we read it and we miss it. So I got to get moving here. Remember this slide, just to review, it's not primarily about, the story of the Bible, the overarching story is not primarily about you and I. We're in it, right? We're in the story, but it's not primarily about us. It's not primarily about God's love for us. It is about God's love for us. It is primarily about God. It's all about God. And we sang that tonight. And it's all about God redeeming people from every people group of the world. God being worshipped by all nations. God means to receive worship from every people group on the planet. If indeed the 66 book of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible is one story, then we suggested a couple weeks ago that the introduction would be Genesis 1 through 11. The first chapter is Genesis 12. When God calls Abraham, and you remember that, God calls Abraham, he says, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, several promises. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And we have a tendency to overlook the last promise, that through you, Abraham, this isn't a command. This is God's promise to Abraham. Through you, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. The end of the story, the last chapter, Revelation, that beautiful picture where John is given this vision of it when it's all done. When, when we all see Jesus and all the ingathering has taken place. It's a phenomenal picture. Just try to wrap your brain around it. It's impossible actually to wrap your brain around it. John says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. How many? A great multitude that no one could count. Millions. Billions? I don't know. Too many to count. Where were they from? They were from every nation, tribe, and people and language. They were from the Hazara people in north-central Afghanistan, a minority Muslim people that is hated by the majority Pashtun people. Very few of them know Jesus yet. They're from Somalia. Somalis who are now scattered around the world, but what a horrible, difficult place to live in the eastern African country of Somalia. They're from the many nomadic people groups of the world, such as the the, uh, Tomachek in northern Africa and the, the, uh, what's the word, the the, uh, Fulani people in northwest Africa. Millions and millions of them. They travel all over. They're very hard to reach and very few of them have been open to the gospel to this point. They... Some around the throne are going to be from the Korah people that Chad prayed about tonight. Some are, are from the Yumbi Yumbi, from the old days when we prayed Brad and Beth through that work with the Ateti tribe. People from every nation, tribe, and language are going to be standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice. That's you and I with them. But you know what? I don't think many of them are going to be speaking it in English. How about you? We may be, or maybe there's going to be some holy language that we're all going to be speaking, but I'm thinking everyone in their own language. So most of them won't be speaking English, right? But we'll be around with them. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
<clears throat> I'm a little uncertain how to, how to go through this study from week to week. I don't know if it's best to park on one section and, or one passage and really work it through or go ripping through a whole lot of them so you can see the breadth of it. So we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. So you hang in there. Uh, we're going to start out by tackling now the story of the Exodus. Um, explore the lost, two lost components, I would say, that it's all about God, and it's all about God reaching or being known to all peoples. Plan on spending time on Exodus of Israel from Egypt and then cover some more passages rather quickly from Exodus to Joshua. Not nearly all of them, but we're going to touch on a lot of them. So hang on, and here we go. This first section, I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. If, you don't, if you're more comfortable looking on the screen, I don't have all the words there, just the key words to the, the passages we're going to go through. Many of us are very familiar with the story. I'm guessing most of us don't realize this thread that goes through this story of Exodus. So we're starting in chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. And this is before the plagues have started when God is speaking to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Verse 5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. I forgot to remind you, this is the New International Version that I use, so bear with me there. Most of you have a different translation. That's okay. So now, flip the page over. Chapter 8, we've had the plague of the blood, water turned to blood, and then the frogs everywhere. I like to think even in their pillowcases. And chapter 8, 9 through 10, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you, Pharaoh, the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of these frogs except for, the th- except for those that remain in the Nile. Right away, Pharaoh says, Tomorrow. Moses replied, It will be as you say. Why? Or with the result. So that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, 19 to 22. So just a little bit later, the plague of the gnats. Verse 19. The magicians said to Pharaoh, I need to back up, the first two plagues, the water to blood and the frogs, somehow, I don't understand this, the magicians were able to duplicate that. They're able to, through their magic and their powers, able to kind of duplicate that. Well, not this one. They can't figure out how to make gnats spread all over and cause havoc. So the magicians in verse 19 said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. We can't do this. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. 
so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, the fourth plague, and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, and even the ground where they are. Then look at this, a little different. But, but on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where the people where my people live. So Israel's living within Egypt in the land of Goshen, surrounded by Egyptians. No swarms of flies will be there. I'm not going to send the flies to the Israelites, just to the Egyptians. You're going to see me do that. And what's the result of that? Why? So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. We tend to think that the Exodus is about God delivering his people, right? His favorite people, his special people, his chosen people, out from their terrible situation of slavery and freeing them from that. And that's true. But is that the only reason? Absolutely not. It's so that Egypt, so that Pharaoh, so that the nations will see that I am God. And let's go on. So that's the, par- that's the plague of the flies. At the end of that... Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, plague of the livestock, plague of the boils, verse 13 of chapter 19. I need to look on the screen. You're already looking there. 9.13, this is the beginning of the plague of the hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they might what? Worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So that, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's not just for Egypt, right? I want to show you my incredible power so that my name can be known, proclaimed in all the earth. Some more uh, plagues, hail, well, actually the end of the hail, 929. Moses replies, to Pharaoh, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail. Why? So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Pharaoh, Pharaoh thinks he's the head of the greatest nation in the world. The earth is his. No, God says, not at all. You will find out that the earth is mine. Okay? That's the message from there. 10, 1 to 2, the plague of the locusts. Then the Lord, speaking to Moses, says, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you, Moses, Israel, may know that I am the Lord. Jump ahead. We've got the plague of darkness and now the final plague, the plague of the firstborn. I'm going to read 11, 1 through 9. The key verse there is verse 9. But just to get the sense here, this is the final one. God is going to finally 
bring his people out. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbor for articles of, neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. I've pondered that statement. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Israelites. How so? How could that have happened? They should be hating them, shouldn't they? I submit to you, and we're going to see a little more later. What if you were an Egyptian, and all this had been happening to you, and you saw this almighty God and the God of Israel? Um, maybe they got something I want, right? So the Egyptians were favorably disposed towards the people. Um, Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Verse 4, so Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son of Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man or animal. <laughs> then... Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. <clears throat> All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, and all the people who follow you. After that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Verse 9, The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. Why? so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. I mean to be known. I mean to be worshipped. I want to reach even some from Egypt and from the nations. Jump ahead to Exodus 14. This is after the children of Israel have left Egypt. They're now pinned against the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's brought his army and they're coming after him. And they're at the Red Sea and everyone's kind of wondering what's going on and they're worried. I'm just going to read those three verses. Verse 4. God to Moses, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. That means the nations of Israel. But I will gain glory. Catch that? I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 17 and 18. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. That means in the Red Sea that's been parted. They're going to chase in after. You know the story. They get swallowed up. And then God says, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh. I got missed, lost. Just a second. Okay. And then I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh. Three times he says there, this is going to be okay, Moses. You guys are going to be fine. I am going to gain glory. They're going to recognize who really is the God of the universe. So that's the story within the story of the Exodus that God means to be known. He's not just bringing his people out. He's making a statement about who he is and who is really over all the earth and who is not, right? And so that's, that's um, the story of the Exodus. Question. 
Did God gain glory through the Exodus? Did the nations learn that God is the Lord? You're welcome to thumb through your Bible, but the rest of the verses are going to be on the screen uh, from here on in. Chapter 12, 35 38 to 38, just as the people of Israel were leaving, were getting out of Egypt. <clears throat> the Israelites did as Moses instructed, and they asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. That's a repeat, right? And they gave them what they asked for, so that they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So generally people figured there was, must have been at least 2 million Israelites that left Egypt. And look at the beginning of verse 38. Explain that one to me. Many other people went up with them. What does that mean? I'm guessing most of you have not seen that before, just like it was with me. Many other people went up. Are they talking about Israelis? No, they've already been mentioned. Many, uh, who's going up with them? Some of the Egyptians. Maybe those that were favorably disposed towards Israel. Maybe those that saw all these incredible plagues and this great judgment of God and said, yeah, 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 yeah. He is the Lord of the earth. He is the Lord. I want him. And so the Egyptians didn't just get plundered or give their gold and silver and clothing to Israel and said, get out of here. No, no, they, some of them said, what? I'm coming with you. So it wasn't just Israelis, Israelites. It was others. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock. Question, did God gain glory and the nations learn who God is? After the crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus 15, 11 through 16, Moses is writing down a song. Who among the gods, and he's worshiping, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. <clears throat> Excuse me. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone. Are the nations taking note what God has done? They're filled with fear, anguish, terror. They're melting. They're trembling. Why? Because they've seen this incredible work of God through the nation of Israel. Question, did God gain glory and the nations learn who God is? Exodus 18, 1 through 11. Jethro, you remember Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses? Midianite, not an Israeli, not an Egyptian. Moses spends 40 years with him and his family in the wilderness when he married his daughter and, and, and raised his family. Now Jethro, Exodus 18, 1, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships that they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them every time. So Moses tells his father-in-law, a Midianite, all that God had done. So what happens, verse 9? Jethro 
Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of Egyptians and of Pharaoh. Wait, this is Jethro. Praise, he's worshiping, right? He's praising God. Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Did God gain glory and the nation learn who God is? Joshua in Jericho, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, the Israelites are finally starting to go into the land and their first city that they need to conquer is Jericho. They send spies in there. What's it like? We've got to figure this out. Verse 8 of chapter 2, before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, a Jerichoite, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Then he breaks out and prays, or she does. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and in the earth below. I submit to you that God was all about his name when he brought people out of Egypt, when he moved them through the, uh, through the wilderness, when they went into the land, God said, it's all about me and I want all the nations to know. A little change now. Three, I want to give three examples from Exodus to Joshua, including two from Moses, one from Joshua, how they plead with God, invoking to God, almost arguing with him, you can't wipe these people off the face of the earth. And you may be familiar with this, you may not. First example is following the incident of the golden calf. Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the the Ten Commandments, the, the law from God, and he's ready to come down. And the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 32, I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power? or with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Oh, Lord, turn from your fierce, fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster in your people. It won't look good to you. They won't be giving you glory if this happens. And we know the story. God does relent. He does bring judgment But he does continue on because he means to be worshipped. He means to be known. He means to be recognized by the nations. Numbers 14, 10 through 16. This is 
when the Israelites refused to go into the promised land. You know the story. They sent 12 spies into the land. Ten came back and said, no way, we can't do this. Impossible. Two came back and said, no way, we can't do this on ourselves, but God's on our side. We can do this, and we must do this, and we will do this. And the nation refuses to go. When the Israelites refused to go into the promised land, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites, and those in the wilderness, they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord wasn't able. The Lord wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. What would this do for your name, Lord? How can you do this? And we know that God said, all right, makes sense, Moses. We are going to, we are going to bring death to every one of those 20 years and older. They're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness until they all die off. But you're right. It's all about my name. And so we're going to, we're going to have this plan and we're going to go forward. One final example. This is Joshua has led his people into the promised land. They've surrounded Jericho, seven days of marching, remember that, and the seventh day, seven times. Walls fall, great victory, they're all excited. They send a contingent army up to this little city of Ai, and they are soundly, horribly defeated. And Joshua doesn't know what to do. Joshua tears his clothes, and he falls face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust in their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. And then what question does Joshua ask the Lord? What then? What then will you do for your own great name? And of course, God follows that up and says, Stand up, Joshua. Why are you laying on your face in the ground? There's sin in the camp. And you've got to deal with that sin. And we know the story of Achan's sin and and how that happened. You can't be blessed. My name is not going to go through the mud. We're going to take care of my name, and you're going to obey. And so that was the response. But all three of these examples where God's special chosen leader of his people plead with him, it's all about you, God. Right? It's not about us. How is your name going to fare among the nations if you destroy us? So what? How should this affect my life? And quite frankly, I have trouble knowing just how to explain this. This is not rocket science. This is not something special that I got from God. 
I want to challenge us to think through that the application to this story of the Bible, that it's all about God and his reach to the nations, and that every last one of us are to be a part of that. And we're to join him, and we're privileged to join him and to be a part of reaching all peoples. In our sphere where we are, how does that look? But I want to challenge us even to think further. How should this story of the Bible, that it's all about God, that it's all about him reaching all peoples, how should that affect the decisions we make in life? How about as young people, where do I go to college? What do I study? How about who should I marry? How about uh, where should I live? What should be my occupation? How about, you know, I'm getting up there in years. How should my retirement look? I submit to you that all these and many other decisions should be formed by the understanding that this life is not mine, it's God's, and that he wants me to part of reaching all peoples. How about uh, church life? How should it look here? How should we fellowship together? How should we worship together? How should we serve together? How should we challenge each other, uh, uh, rebuke each other in sin? How should we reach out in our communities? How should this affect our church life? How should it affect our evangelism efforts? I submit it should have all sorts of effect on that. How about family life? How do I raise my children? What do I teach them? How do I live in front of them? What's my goal for them? Grandparents, how do I impact my grandchildren? This has everything to do with that. How about my finances? Does this have any effect on that? My resources, my possessions. Who owns it? Who's responsible for it? What decisions do I make concerning that? How about my prayer life? How about the prayer life of this church family corporately together? Should this have any bearing on that? I say so. How about our own free time? Does the story of the Bible, that it's all about God, and it's all about Him reaching the nations, should that have any impact on what I have fun doing and the time I spend when I don't have to work or sleep or whatever else I have to do? How about trials, suffering, persecution that we all face? How about our workplace how should I work for my employer? How should I treat my employee? How about how should we worship? I just want to touch on, and I don't know really how to do this, but I'm going to do it, right? Because I have to. How should this really affect the challenges, the trials that we face? If I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you are in a, don't do it, if you are in the midst of a trial right now, a difficulty, some tough thing going on, whether it be, whether it be uh, a relationship issue with someone in your family or neighborhood or at the workplace, whether it be a physical issue, whether it be periodic nagging headaches, intense headaches, cancer that's threatening my life or the life of a loved one, etc., whether it be sliding into second base head first, any of those kind of things, weird injuries that we can get. How should this affect the challenges we face? Some of you might think right now, right now things are going pretty well, but you know that that's not always going to be that way. We've all had these challenges, these hardships, these difficulties. Trials, suffering, persecution. Just want to remind you of some verses that you all know, or most of them that you all know. Um, and I want to try to challenge you in terms of this one story of the Bible, how that fits in. James 1, 2-4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I submit to you that we don't just, are not just challenged to consider pure joy when we face trials for our own good because it's going to mature us. It's going to do that. But it's going to make us more ready to worship our king. And it's going to make us more prepared to be a part of our king's advance of the gospel. You know, Chad prayed again tonight. We're all praying for the Schaefers. They've been through it, haven't they? They've been through it. Not only the persecution they're getting the tribe, but the death of her brother. And she's still in the States, Shelley. And uh, the challenge is there. We have unexpected death in this church family. We've had several of those in the last year, unexpected and expected, and they're hard. How do we deal with these trials, these difficulties? How do we consider pure joy? I think, I think, I think the way we do it is because we recognize that this life is not about us. This world is not our home, right? We have something to look forward to, and therefore we can fight through, we can work through whatever God allows us to work through so that we can be more like him so that we can better serve him and worship him. Acts 14.22, this is a little less known. I love this short phrase. Paul and his companions are going through first missionary journey, going back through the four or five cities that they just started churches in the last few months. And they say to the leaders of those churches or to the churches, we must go through many hardships enter the kingdom of God. Did you know that this is promised for us? Difficulties, trials, struggles? How do we view that? How are we supposed to understand that? How about Matthew 5.10, the last beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, You probably, many of you, are following people who are persecuted around the world. We have maybe millions, but certainly thousands and thousands and thousands of brothers and sisters who are persecuted every day, who don't know what's going to happen to them today because they know Jesus and because they're following Jesus. They're blessed. Jesus says they're blessed. How could that be? It can't be. It can't possibly be unless it's about God and not about us, right? And that he's working in our lives and he's got a purpose and a plan and he offers the privilege for us to be a part of his march to reach all peoples. Romans 8, 17 to 18, Paul that great chapter, Romans 8, in the middle of it, he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be, re- that will be revealed within us, or in us. Bottom line, whatever we face here, easy to say when we're not going through it, isn't it? But whatever we face on this earth, can we say it will be worth it all when we see Jesus? Can we say that it's all about God? Can we say to our King, our Lord, our Savior, whatever you want me to go through, Father, help me, help me to be a part of your reach to the nations, however that's going to look. I have a nephew right now who's just now gone to Ann Arbor. Tomorrow morning at 730 major, major surgery. Three very difficult surgeries. He was born with spina bifida, pretty normal life for 23 or 24 years. Had degenerative things going on the last four or five years. He's lost the use of his legs. He's losing the use of his arms. 
and they're going to do some major untethering of, of nerves in the bottom of the back. They're going to drain the syrinx, the, the fluid, and they're going to do something up here where the skull meets. How should Mark Vanderwerf respond to that? How does he make it through? I suggest if it's about him, he can't. If it's about our Lord Jesus and he gives it to him, he can. And he can even cry out to God and say, God, whatever you want done with me, I'm yours. And how can I join with you in reaching the nations? I just came upon this this afternoon. This was this, I just thought, you know, I'm going to close with this. From 1 Peter 4, several verses there in one passage. Dear friends, says Peter, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. That's not strange if you're going through trials. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, that's persecution, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator, and continue to do good. Let's pray. Father, so hard to know how to communicate your word. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us. We thank you for your word and the story of the Bible. We thank you that God means that you mean to be known among the nations. We thank you that you desire our worship and the reason you desire our worship is because you are the only one worthy of anyone's worship. So we give you this night, we praise you for who you are and we ask you to help us as your children here, as we read your word, as we study, as we go through to see this story throughout and use it in our lives. Use it to change us. Use it to mold us. Use it to make us more like yourself and to help us to be more effective in joining with you in reaching the nations. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.